Welcome to Account-Based Marketing. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders, sharing thoughts and practical tips for growing your most valuable customers. Hosted by me, Alicia Linden, founder and CEO at Momentum ABM. Welcome to this episode of Account-Based Marketing. Today we're recording in New York with Michael Sperger, Chief Operating Officer at Finastra. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. In this episode, we'll be talking about how you can build your operations to create more customer value. Michael, it's great to have you with us. Do you want to kick off by telling us a little about your career so far? Absolutely. So I started out in the technology consulting and outsourcing world. I worked for some small boutique consulting firms uh, as an IT consultant. I went into the outsourcing business when I joined IBM and worked in the what they called strategic outsourcing, uh, which was IT outsourcing for very large clients for about seven years. I worked in the competitive and market intelligence area. Then I went to SAP, uh, and that was a conscious choice. I was working in outsourcing and became interested in software. I wanted to know more about the dynamics of a software business as opposed to a services business. So there was an opportunity to make kind of a, a jump from one market intelligence function to another did that and worked in the market intelligence function with SAP for a few years before an opportunity came up to work in the business partners team. Uh, So SAP has a very large channels and ecosystems organization. Started doing that working with consulting and outsourcing partners, which was very familiar to me from my past life. And Probably about five years ago, close to six years ago, the new global head of partners at Mises, one of the predecessor companies that formed Finastra, came calling asking me to come to Mises and build a partner program of a similar scope to what I had been doing at SAP. Uh, So I've now been with Mises and then Finastra for coming up on six years. Fantastic. Um, Finastra, a really interesting business, was formed, what, in late 2017? Uh, Mid of 2017. So it was the merger of two uh, former companies, uh, DNH, which was a Canadian uh, fintech company, and Mises, which was a UK fintech company. Um, So the combination of the two creates the third largest fintech company in the world. And you've got, you're turning over about 2.1 billion, 10,000 employees? Correct. Fantastic. And your role in Finastra, what what does your day-to-day look like? So my day-to-day involves really the entire span of the client life cycle. So I have everything from a business development manager uh, to the customer success team working for me. I spend my days thinking about how we serve our clients across that whole cycle from the initial conversations around buying one of our solutions through the implementation go live and then the life cycle which will of course involve upgrades to the software extensions of the platform into other areas and we hope a further deepening of the relationship between the client and Finastra by buying more things from us. Fantastic and specifically thinking about adding value to that customer life cycle that you described how are you focused in in doing that is it about shaping the operations in Finastra Is it about intervention um, and conversations you're having directly with customers? A little bit of both. So a big part of what I'm doing in this role is orchestrating all of the sales enablement functions. So I don't have the sales team working for me. The sales management team are peers of mine. I am looking after everything that supports the sales cycle in one form or another. So it's a kind of mix of direct and indirect reporting lines. 
so that's the that's kind of the front end of the process, and and what we're looking at there is bringing harmony and coherence to the way that we serve the client during the sales cycle. We want to make sure that we are putting our best foot forward, of course. We also want to make sure that the client is getting the full value of everything that we can do for them. So, for instance, we have a partners team, which I was previously involved in setting up. And many times the client is going to use one of our strategic partners to implement the software. So it's best for everybody if we're having an active conversation during the license sales cycle about how that's going to work. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that really sets up the, the theme for the rest of the journey, which is risk management and mitigation. So I'm looking at all of the points of potential friction in the relationship between Finastra and the client. Mm -hmm. And I'm working with my team to figure out how do we lessen or remove those points of friction so that the experience of doing business with us is not just good on, on its current terms, but good enough that the customer will consider and prefer doing more business with us over time. Pretty big job then, Michael, given right. that uh, you're having to not just look at a standard customer lifecycle going from left to right, but actually lots of complexity along the way. I have no trouble filling my days. <laughs> and I'm seeing people like KPMG in the Americas, Microsoft, Apple, they're all hiring for newly created chief operating officers. What, what do you think is driving that shift? I can't speak for anybody else. I think for Finastra, there was a choice to put these roles in place. And we now have, I have counterparts in our other regions of the business. We work very closely together. I think it gets down to, first off, continuity. The, the sales organization ebbs and flows. Our focus changes. We get involved in certain big deals that draw a lot of resources from the organization. And of course, the staffing changes. Salespeople move around. And so the continuity of the client experience, making sure that we're taking the long view is really important. I think a big shift that we've made in our business is that we have been moving from the traditional on-premise uh, license and maintenance model toward uh, a subscription model and doing also doing more and more hosting of our solutions in the cloud. So for me... That's kind of a return to what I first experienced at IBM in the outsourcing business. These are long-term relationships, right? So we're signing five, seven, ten-year contracts with the client. Those contracts will outlive a lot of the people who were involved in signing them initially. So the organization needs mechanisms in place to provide continuity across the span of that relationship. I think the other thing that I imagine is driving this choice for other organizations, because we see it, is the complexity of our own organization. As you said, we're about 10,000 people. It's about $2 billion in revenue. We have many different departments. We have many different product lines. And, you know, there's, a, there's an interest at all levels in the business world to try and keep things simple. But the value increasingly that we and others create is actually navigating and making sense of complexity with and on behalf of our clients. Mm -hmm. And so 
if you're going to put yourself forward as a creator of that kind of value, then you have to have infrastructure to deal with that complexity. So when you put the two together, when you think about the continuity of a years-long relationship and you think about the complexity as a value driver, then things like COO roles just naturally make, make sense. Make a lot of sense, don't they? Yeah. And particularly consolidating those silos often form as your organizations get larger and more complex marketing, sales functions, business development, post-purchase, the customer success can, can often go off and do their own thing separately and you need to keep them connected, particularly for long periods of time. That's right. In, in that complex life cycle. And when I look at some of these roles, Michael, they're from very different backgrounds and thinking about what makes the ideal chief operating officer. What, what skills do you think are most critical for the role that you're doing at Finastra? I think there were two formative experiences. Uh, first, when you look at the work that I got to do in competitive and market intelligence, I would always say that I would, got to work in the engine room of the ship. Yeah. Um, you have a privileged view to how your own business really works and makes money. You have to understand how others work and make money. When you're doing competitive intelligence in particular, if you get good enough at it, you start to be able to anticipate anywhere from six to 12 months out the moves that your competitors are going to make. That's the value that you create in that role for your own employer. And so that implies a depth of understanding that is essential to doing that job. So that was really helpful. And then more recently, the partner work, you, in order to partner well with another organization, you have to understand the limits of what you do well and the places where it would make sense to engage a complementary resource. So when you're a software company, you will be asked to do a lot of work around services. And very often, it makes sense for the software vendor to do the core configuration of their own product. In fact, a partner said to me one time, if I tried to do it for the client, and anything goes wrong, they're just going to call you in to redo it anyway. So you might as well do it in yeah. the first place. Now, around that, when you buy something from Finastra like Loan IQ, which is our flagship product for uh, complex loan servicing, loan servicing involves lots of processes, business mm -hmm. processes in the organization. And if you modernize the software, you're going to think about changing those processes. Some of them you'll have to, some of them you'll want to, and you're going to need a partner to guide you through that process. The software vendor can do it, but many clients find it helpful to go get a third party who has a really deep bench in the business processes as opposed to just the technology. So, so that combination of if you have a feel for the industry dynamics and you have a feel for what you do well and where you start to hit some of your own limits as Almost an organization. Where, where are your strengths, where are your capabilities, and also what's the value exchange Right. I mean, you know, we've, we've gone through, in the 70s, there were these conglomerates that did everything from... It's a one-stop pa shop. Right, yeah. pasta sauce to telecom. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and then starting from the late 80s, early 90s, we went into core competencies and outsourcing and kind of swung in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And the answer was always going to be kind of a happy medium. And, and for us, it's, you know, sticking to our knitting in terms of developing the software, making it more useful over time, and making space. I mean, we create a lot of opportunity for mm -hmm. services partners because yeah. there's a kind of multiplier effect that goes along with somebody choosing to change their software. Yeah. 
Got it. So thinking about the enterprise then, you're responsible for the enterprise segment in America's, Michael. Let's talk a little bit about doing business in that space. What, what does the enterprise look like for Finastra? So we primarily serve banks and, uh, and we also serve a number of non-bank financial institutions. Okay. Uh, and you're working with 90 of the world's top 100 top banks. 100 banks, got it. So we, we have that presence in very large banks, the kind of the usual suspects. We also do a lot of business, especially in the U.S. and Canada, with smaller banks and credit unions. And there's a lot of activity kind of on the boundary. So in the banking industry, we use uh, assets under management as a yardstick. So we tend to think of you know somewhere between $1 billion and $10 billion, depending on the characteristics of the bank, is the point where they would go from being served by our community markets business to being served by our enterprise business. And that's that market segments in constant flux. Some people are doing $1 billion worth of business and it's in exotic cryptocurrency. Other people are doing 10 or $20 billion in business, but they're really just a community bank that has a large deposit base. Right. It, it, it's like the edge of the, the sea, right? Like uh, on the beach, like it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have kind of a shape to it and it's constantly changing. But the, the guiding principle for us is we're looking to work with banks who have decided to invest in substantial corporate and commercial business. Mm -hmm. That's really our sweet spot in the enterprise world. Yeah. Okay. And thinking about some of those banks, those uh, target enterprises, whether they're customers or or net new, um, how are you seeing your sales strategies shift over time? We've we've talked a little bit about the partner ecosystem changing and the landscape and your capabilities, your selling in more cloud offerings. How's that shifted and impacted your overall go-to-market? Well, I think the cloud shift is really big for the entire industry. It's been very challenging. I mean, in some sense, banks have been using hosted services from some of the flagship vendors in the U.S. for a long time. What what we see, though, is that the real economic gains are from getting your products into the public cloud. And for banks, that was always going to be very challenging. Up till a few years ago, we didn't have the regulations in place really to even say what that should look like. So for instance, there there has been an effort uh, that Microsoft undertook to work with the regulators in about 30 OECD countries to sort out what are the audit and security requirements that will pass muster kind of broadly across that group, because you don't want to have 30 different mm-hmm. conflicting ideas for how this should be done for like a, uh, like a JP Morgan or an HSBC that's going to operate across all those all those markets. So working out the audit and security was a big deal. We we see that there are still some challenges there. Some of the vendors in the space are having occasional security breaches and things like that. So it's never a dull moment as far as that goes. But I think the the other the other thing that we see is that the profit margins in banking generally have been under a lot of pressure since the financial crisis. So the way that's affected our sales strategy is we see much more sophisticated buying. Procurement has gotten, you know, much, much savvier about yeah. what they're doing. And we need to have a more strategic conversation that lifts us out of a vendor buyer paradigm and puts us more in the realm of a strategic partner. Yeah. And there's that word again, right? This is, you know, this is why this made sense for me personally. The 
shift toward more efficient, streamlined, automated operations, also where you can add products and services easier because that's been a stumbling point in banking forever, and that shift into the cloud, like uh, like everything's happening at once. Yeah. And the way that's manifested for us is we've put a lot more focus into strategic accounts. Got so it. really looking at that, you know, whether you draw that line at one billion or ten billion, you're getting about five hundred banks in the U.S. You're getting another hundred, hundred and fifty in the rest of the Americas, and you're saying, okay, that's a finite market. I'm not going to put billboards up on the highway to talk mm-hmm. to my customers. I need to have a very focused conversation, yeah. and we need to talk about their future and how we're a part of it. So with with that more strategic approach, and you, you touched on earlier, Michael, with the procurement function becoming more savvy, um, there's, there's more people involved in these buying decisions, there's more consensus that's needed. Um, are there any other tactics that you think um, organizations should be adopting as they focus on a strategic set of accounts? I think I think for sure the targeting of the message to the accounts, whether it's individual accounts or cohorts, is really important. We've benefited a lot internally from looking at where there are natural cohorts. And you can define that in multiple ways. So it could be a geographic segment. It could be a set of institutions who are trying to do the same things. It can be it could be a group of clients who've decided each on their own that it's time for them to do a big shift into the cloud. And so they're all on a journey together. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and so thinking through, again, from that, you know, customer success perspective, how are we going to support that group of clients on their journey? Sometimes, you know, an individual institution is pursuing a unique initiative. But more often what we see is that everybody's responsive to similar dynamics. There are synergies on there, yeah. overlapping where they are yeah. and what they're competing against. And thinking about some of the work that you've done at SAP, IBM in your former lives, how how does that compare to the enterprise dynamic at Finastra? Is the way that you look at enterprise different, the way that you're tackling? um, Because those businesses have a huge legacy. IBM, SAP, they've been in the market for a long time and Mm -hmm. Finastra formed more recently with these two businesses coming together. I think there's, there's two through lines that I see. One of them is the idea of industrial grade processes. IBM is obviously great at that. SAP is obviously great at that. Finastra is also great at delivering industrial-grade processes in a financial services setting. The mind doesn't easily connect industrial and financial, financial services. services. <laughs> but if you step back and think yeah. about, you know, what is, a, what is a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo doing? They have millions of account relationships. They, they are servicing a vast array of requirements for their clients. So why would we not think about that as industrial-grade computing or service delivery? It's the same kind of – The scale is there, isn't it? The scale is there. What we also see in the banking world is that technical debt, that legacy, is very much an issue. So we have clients who are still running COBOL on mainframes – and you know, and are running. See the other thing in the don't U.S. Off, don't often hear Cobalt mentioned right, these days, right? <laughs> but when you look at the overall kind of market dynamic and say the the banks that are thriving in the U.S. today 
are the survivors of the financial crisis. Right. And that's true in a lot of other places. And in the U.S., because of our regulatory model, what that means is that the, the stable banks had to absorb the assets of the failing banks. So a typical large bank here is a mishmash of different systems of record, right? And you're just running that because the the cost to rip and replace and start over greenfield like it, it's it's not even feasible yeah. at this point you can't justify the investment and it's too risky mm-hmm. so you're running all this stuff side by side and 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 it's kind of a perverse thing because you could have been doing a good job you could have been running the ship really well but then you have to take over somebody These else's yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and 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 that that's something that i try and keep top of mind because in a very real way what our clients are up against right now was not entirely of their own doing. Mm -hmm. Even if they've been in the bank for a long time, they inherited all the technology debt of the predecessors and even some of the failures that were in their market. Yeah. That's a strange, I think that's unique in our industry. An interesting dynamic and particularly given so many of your customers are in that position. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how organizations can build out their operations to become more customer centric and and drive more of that customer value. Um, Lots of clients come to me and say, we want to do this big bang. We're doing a huge transformation of our operations. We're bringing sales and marketing together. Uh, We're combining our product marketing effort. And often that feels like a big change, a big shift for them. And they're almost missing some of the incremental nudges that they could be achieving. Um, What's your take on that, Michael? It's funny when you say that because... In the banking world, we see very much the opposite, and I think it sets the tone for us. Okay. So we have undergone a lot of change uh, in our organization. Obviously, we had the merger from two years ago. We've been integrating all those products. We've been bringing to market our Fusion Fabric technology, which helps us knit together everything that we do in our own portfolio and also helps our clients bring in their bespoke technology third-party solutions, fintech solutions. So so that's been that's been a big process for us. But even there the idea is that we're enabling an incrementalist approach. So the days of the open heart surgery, it was the old system on a Friday, it's the new system on a Monday. It's not really working that way anymore. And so for us, it's been this duality of how do you how do you keep that intention in mind? of the future state that you want to achieve? And then how do you achieve a lot of that through incremental steps and then here and there make a bigger change? And that's been really important for the way we think about how we serve our clients. So it's had that kind of ripple effect on the way we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So in your operations, if you look at your business, you're you're not making fundamental shifts. You're not making big bang changes. You're making smaller incremental nudges. I think it's in the eye of the beholder. I don't tend to think of them as big bang changes. So for instance, you you know, in creating the COO role uh, in the organization, which we just did in the last uh, few months, whether or not that's a big bang change is arguable. We did some reorganizing of the business, but I look at it as simply the next step in this process that we've been going through for years now. Yeah. Um, it's not a it's not a major course correction. It's not a hard right turn. It's just this was the next logical thing for us to do. Thinking about, Michael, some of the businesses that you've worked in, how can day-to-day operations impact the customer experience, impact that customer life cycle? What do you think are some of those moments that really matter? I think when you're a complex organization serving a complex organization, 
I think I, I identify as a storyteller at heart. Uh, so my undergraduate degree was in English. Uh, it was actually in writing. And I think that the centrality of the narrative, what is the story of the relationship between our two organizations and the things that are happening today? Do they support that or not? You know, are they are they in line? We have our culture to navigate. We have the client's culture to navigate. They're not the same thing. They they often complement and sometimes they conflict. Mm -hmm. And the day-to-day -day operations, as you were talking about before, people get lost in the KPIs in their individual function or they they get deadline fever because they're in the middle of a project. And, you know, that that continuous process of coming back to what really matters here? Like, what are we trying to do? What what you know, what did the client want to do in the first place? And is what we're doing today in sync with that or not? And that really is a big part of the job for me is just is just bringing us back to what were we trying to do here? And, you know, and are we putting the right team in front of the client? Are we putting the right message in front of the client? Are we honoring the fundamental idea of why they want to do business with us. And and that kind of becomes our North Star for, yeah. you know, figuring out like, all right, we're we're kind of in the muck day to day, but like, are we roughly heading in the right direction or not? And that's really important to me. Okay. So it sounds like a, a big part of it is about bringing alignment back to those teams, almost bringing them back to the, the North Star, the guiding, the guiding yeah. star to say, are we on the right track? Yeah. And I think it's really easy. It's really easy for people to attach pathology to that. So they can say something's wrong. We've lost our way. No, like we're moving, we're moving like a huge fleet of ships, right? There's current in the ocean. Yeah. Like, like there's there's a lot of factors that have nothing to do with us being bad at our jobs that cause people to get distracted or or to to legitimately focus on one thing today, which might have a trade off with something else. So just kind of coming back to it over and over again. I talk about we were visiting some family a few years ago, and I was sitting in my sister in law's kitchen on a phone call for work. She's chopping vegetables for dinner, and I hung up from the call, and she said, I have no idea what you do for a living, but I just listened to you on the phone for 45 minutes say, let's do our jobs. Let's do our jobs today. <laughs> That's a big part of it. Bring everyone back to what are we doing here? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And, to, and, to be the, and to be the kind of, um, you, you know, the, the keeper of mm -hmm. what is it that we're here for uh, yeah. um, is that's a big part of it for me. Fantastic. Michael, I've got a, a vision, a dream of organizations actually building their operations around their customer. So combining the product teams, combining sales, business development, marketing, and centering them around a customer department. What's your take on that? Well, my first reaction to that is that in a lot of ways that matter, we're living it within Finastra okay. right now. So we have, a, we have a great deal of continuity across those functions that you describe. My second reaction, when you when you lay out that vision is I think something we need to pay attention to is the integrity of engineering, especially when we're 
putting together complex products or services. Because yeah. Finasta invests a huge amount in R&D, don't you? You've got about 4,500 people we in do. R&D yeah. roles. Yes, half the organization yeah. is in R&D. That's a big deal for us. And I think when you when you look at the wider market, right, we have all the examples we need of what it looks like when organizations don't look after engineering and respect the importance of quality engineering as central to their job. Right. We talk about we were talking a moment ago about losing your way. You know, I look at what's happening with Boeing and the 737 Max. Right. And and it feels like that's an example of an organization that may have lost its way from an engineering perspective. I don't think it was the fault of the engineers, but I've you know, having worked in a number of technology companies that that pressure to sustain margins, to keep meeting the expectations of investors is huge. Um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you, you know, you have to recognize that, that product is where it all comes from, right? Well, I can, I can construct a brilliant sales organization, but if the product can't deliver the goods mm-hmm. consistently over time, I will lose the right to have those long-term relationships with clients. So Michael, is your take to keep product and engineering protected or for, for me, it feels like a a virtuous cycle the customers feed some of that innovation it's how how quickly can product actually respond to the market yeah and give you that first mover advantage and the more centric your engineering teams are around the customer they're delivering more value-based solutions as opposed to let's move the needle two percent over here yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah i don't think it's a i don't think it's a separation in, in fact if anything i think that infusing the rest of that cycle with a deeper understanding of engineering process, quality, old-fashioned quality, right? Yeah. Not not just kind of quality as a buzzword, but, but true. Box, it's done. <laughs> yeah, true. Exactly. True quality in the delivery of what you're doing. I've seen over the years that sales and product can often feel like they're working at cross purposes with each other. We benefit at Finastra from a pretty good integration between sales and, and product. And I think that I think what I've learned from that is that when sales opens up to embracing some science and product opens up to embracing a little bit of art, then we find the magic in the middle. The perfect dream, yeah. Indeed. I think there's always healthy tension between sales and product. Sales just want to sell what, right, what right, they believe right. they've you, got and what their customers need and, and, and I think that, need to make it work. And I think being attuned to what's going to happen next in the market, you mm-hmm. know, like – all right, I've got some clients who say that they want X. Like, let's do that, Yeah. right? And product is going, you have three clients who said that, and we have 10,000 clients that we're serving. Like, uh, one swallow doesn't make a summer, right? Like, yeah. uh, So th- that's, the, that's the challenge. We've got to make the numbers add up. Given your experience in market intelligence in the partner world, it sounds like you've brought lots of those learnings into your role today at Finastra. Fast forward to end of 2020, what are your predictions, thoughts on hmm. top trends, things that you'll see shifting in the market? In in our world, the biggest trend is around the shift from an overnight processing model to a real-time model. Okay. And so... You know, so for for most of the time that we've had computers in banks, 
the idea was you do your transactions during the day, then you do an overnight reconciliation, you clear everything, yeah. right? That's the way the markets work. That's the way the individual banks work. And in every domain that we serve, there's a shift happening toward real time that's not going away. So, and, and, you know, and we can say some of that is, some of that is the cloud, the internet, Mm -hmm. some of it is mobile technology, um, the expectation from all other areas of our lives that things will be instant gratification, Yeah. right? So what we see with the banks is there's a whole set of ways that you can kind of fake real time, but you hit a wall and you have to make that shift and it's discontinuous. Okay. And and so that is the big driver that I see in our industry. I think the other thing more generally uh, uh, in the US and Canada, we have a very long lived business cycle, you know, so we're in our longest economic expansion in US history. We also have an election year, presidential election year, so yeah. 2020 is going to be lively to say the least. Um, we see the political dynamics in South America right now, you know, kind of reaching a fever pitch in a lot of countries. Um, but but the technologically, that shift to real time is the thing that's not going away. And Michael, how will that shift to real time impact your operations and the way that you're going to market? Will it, it change how you're interacting with customers? Will obviously change what you're deploying and delivering for those customers. It plays to our strengths technologically. I think it plays to our strengths as a sales and and customer success organization in the sense that we we are ready in every sense to take that journey with clients. Clients who are clients who have had to simulate real time in their operations but haven't really made that shift to being a real-time organization, as I say, like that's a you can't unpeel that banana. Like you, you know that that's going to happen, and there's no going back. Um, and we have a level of comfort with what that looks like before, during, after. So one of the things I I often remind our team is that that's a that's a real value for our own clients, like the expertise that we have from going on that journey hundreds of times as an organization, you know, it's like we talk about, you know, do you want to go to the surgeon who does one heart valve a year or the one who's doing a thousand, right? Like that's, and, and, and that's a, and that's a big part of our, of our value proposition to clients. Like we've been there, we've seen it all, we've done it all. We're, you know, we're ready and, and we have that expertise. Got it. Michael, let's talk a little bit about strategies that organizations can adopt when they're thinking about creating customer value. What, mm-hmm. what would your top two or three things be that a, another CRO could adopt to, to really impact their enterprise space? I think the first thing, if you're in an enterprise business, I think the first thing that you want to look at is the addressable market that you have and the concentration of business within that market. So I don't know if this is still true, but in the time that I was at IBM, 3% of its customers represented 83% of its revenue, right? Kind it's still not far off. <laughs> right, right, right. It's kind of an extreme example, but, but I, 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 I tend to think that most of the time in enterprise businesses, you're going to have that kind of waiting. You'll have the concentration, yeah. Right. And, and it naturally sets up a set of questions for you. So you know so what's the push and pull between you and those lead clients on the shape that your business is going to take so you talk about product and sales right are are your are your top 10 clients going to dictate your roadmap 
or do you have a compelling technology vision and you're going to lead them, right? Mm -hmm. It's the it's the Henry Ford, you know, if if I'd ask the customers they they'd want faster horses, right? Yeah. And again, that's an area where the balance is going to constantly move and it doesn't imply that we're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. We're we're just we're just letting it live and and letting that flow. So that's a big thing that I think people need to pay attention to is like understand your concentration of your clients current and potential you know so if you look at your pipeline and sort of play it out and say based on our win rates based on you know based on our current position with the pipeline where are we going to be in the next couple of years who's emerging as my most important accounts of the future if not today i think the other thing when it comes to an enterprise business is that continuity across the journey we just keep coming back to that as like as like the the touchstone for everything that we're doing so so making sure that sales cycles are taking into account everything on the journey there is no transactional relationship in an enterprise business it's all long-term relationships whether you believe it or not doesn't change the fact that's how it is okay michael so know your market number one and number two think about the whole customer life cycle yes and how you drive continuity fantastic Today, we're giving away a copy of one of your favorite books, Michael. Indeed. Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Do you want to tell me a little bit about this book? Sure thing. So Chris uh, is a former FBI hostage negotiator who wrote this book about negotiating. Uh, It's applicable in a business setting. It's applicable in a family setting. (laughs) Uh, He's a dad and he, you know, he tells stories about how his, his own kids used the techniques on him. Uh, to get what they wanted and needed at different points. And what I loved about it is, you know, like many of us, I kind of grew up on the Harvard negotiation, getting to yes, you know, BATNA and finding the middle ground and everything. And he said, all that goes out the window in a hostage negotiation. If they've got 10 people in the bank, you can't say to the robbers, you keep five and I'll take five. That doesn't work. You know, so so the idea that a successful negotiation is a total agreement on your terms is kind of radical, you know, yeah, it's very it's different. Yeah. yeah, it's a very different starting point. And, you know, and he makes a convincing argument. This is why it has to be that way. This this is how you do it. So it's a fun read. Brilliant. Today, we're giving away a copy of Michael's recommendation, Never Split the Difference, a book by Chris Voss. To enter, join the conversation over on Twitter using the ABM podcast hashtag. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. My pleasure. To keep the conversation going, we are hosting two client community events where we'll look at the complexity of the enterprise buying cycle. The first event will be held in Seattle on Wednesday the 13th of November and the second event will be held in London on Thursday the 21st of November. To register, visit MomentumABM.com and I'd love to see you there. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum ABM, the account-based marketing consultancy transforming how sales and marketing teams grow their biggest customers. You can learn more at MomentumABM.com.